Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Hadit.com Radio Show. Hadit.com Radio is an in-depth look at all things VA. If you need help with the VA, log on to Hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Gerald Cook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, on this uh, 18th day of October. 2018, and we're here with our co-host, Jay Basser, and tonight our guest speakers will be Dr. Bash and Bill Krieger, Uh, whenever they get here, uh, they're running a little little late, but they'll they'll be along directly, and... uh, We'll we'll get them going real good for y'all. If anyone has any questions or comments, feel free to call in. Uh, Our call-in number is 347-237-4819. Now, this call-in number, once again, is 347 Two three seven four eight one nine, and then you hit uh, number one, and that'll put you in the queue with us. And when we see you come in the queue, we'll we'll try to get you on the line here. Uh, Two forty, I think that's Doctor Bash. Yep, yes, Doctor Bash. Yep, yep. How you doing? I'm How good, you I'm doing good. today, Doctor Bash? Well, and that looks like uh, Bill come in right behind you. <laughs> yeah, here I come. Here I come. Glad to be here. Well, we're waiting <laughs> on y'all. Uh, we wouldn't dare start without chance. Uh So we got them all prepped up and raring to go. Uh, so. Uh, let's see, what would you want to talk about today, Dr. Bash? Well, we were going to talk a little about maybe CUE and and severance, severance, you know, in the, in the, cut, in the cut benefits. Oh, Reductions. when they, oh, yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. That catches a lot, a lot of, of people off guard. Yeah, I think there's a lot of effort to try and stay save budget money so we're getting a lot of see a lot of reduction a lot of reductions, you know? Yes. Uh it's swift swift to do it. So most um, generally a, a veteran gets worse, not better, but and uh some some cases possibly that could be improvement. It depends on circumstances I guess. Yeah, um, there's a particularly problematic when we're dealing with the um, evaluation of a service-connected disability and the decision is made to reduce that evaluation. Uh, there's a long shopping list of tests and requirements that one must find before you are permitted to reduce a veteran's evaluation of disability. And what I've found over the years is that uh, a significant portion of those reductions are made without consideration of the requisite regulatory requirements. So we have, Well, uh, that may be so, but when uh, doesn't the veteran... Don't they have to give the veteran so much notice before they actually reduce their their uh, uh, comp or pension, whatever it is? Yes, yes, you're exactly right. Um, and the governing regulation for that is 38 CFR 3.105E, and that Congress basically created that rule to allow a veteran time to adjust his lifestyle and his budget before 
suffering the loss of that income. And that's why the regulation provides now 60 days. Um, we were recently asked to review a case for a veteran who had suffered a reduction. And the first thing I noticed was that they effectuated the reduction 59 days after the decision to reduce. Well, I'm sorry, but 59 days is not 60. So in order to comply with the regulation, if they do the right thing, VA must for that veteran immediately restore his evaluation. And then after they pass all the other tests, they may again propose to reduce in the future if they want to continue to try to do that. But because they missed that 60-day period, that reduction is what's called under the law void ad initio, meaning from the beginning. And so when, and the court is consistently held that whenever VA errs in a reduction, the remedy is immediate restoration effective from the date of the reduction. Give him a couple of details about this guy. This is a guy, this is a brain tumor patient, right? Yes, one of our brain tumor patients. Um, and the, so the, my, my, VA... my point is it's, it's particularly egregious because a brain tumor patient, <laughs> his brain doesn't work normally properly, you know. So for them to reduce them incorrectly is really bad because he, got, he can't protect himself against the, the system that's, you know, that's taking advantage of him. Yeah, yeah basically. Well, I yeah, have to lay, lay behind. Yeah. Yeah, his, his so, impairment itself renders him less able to defend his compensation. And um, it, it's, it's just unforgivable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's my point, yeah. So, um, so the rules are pretty clear. It's 60 days. And then, and then uh, this guy, I don't think they gave him very good. Did they give him notice enough, though? I can't remember if they gave him the right paperwork either. Did they notify him as well as they should have? Yeah. Well, now, we have two brain tumor patients that yeah, we're working right. with right now. But, we, um, can mix, we can mix the, them up a little bit if we want. Yeah, yeah it mixes, mixes me up a little. <laughs> yeah. But the, um, the one I'm thinking of, yes, he, um, he was reduced with a mere 59-day notice, and mm-hmm. now he's filed his notice of disagreement. And um, along with your medical evaluation to help them understand the correct way to evaluate the disability, and hopefully that will be promptly restored. All right. And the second guy, <laughs> the, the second guy, they didn't give him the, they didn't give him the notice, right? Bill, they didn't give him the right paperwork or something. Um, well, what I'm what I'm observing in the second case, um. They initially granted service connection for a tumor, but mistakenly adjudicated it as if it were a benign tumor. Right. And it wasn't. It was a malignant tumor. Well, last January, VA recognized their error, clear and unmistakable error, and they granted him a total evaluation from the day after service until two years after he finished his radiation uh, therapy, which was correct. However, they then assigned, in the same rating decision, the minimum 30% evaluation for residuals of brain tumor. Well, the minimum evaluation is only payable if you have no other disabilities manifesting as a result. So that wasn't right. But they also missed the date of reduction. They made it in the middle of the month instead of the first of the month. In other words, um, reductions are all end of month. And so 
when they reduced him in the middle of one month, had they correctly carried out to the end of the month, it would have been another month, one month compensation at 100%. So they, they got that wrong as well. Uh, now, we've been reviewing treatment records, and we've been discussing what the possibilities are, and it, it looks like the veteran has a, a myriad of complications from that brain tumor and surgery and radiation, and uh, we're, we're hopeful that we'll be able to uh, be certain he has a total and permanent evaluation after we finish our work. It's now pending waiting for a uh, hearing before BVA. And so our so both, will be available to him before the hearing. So both, both these cases are, you know, there's a problem with timing, right? They're trying to rush to reduce these guys without giving them adequate notification and timing. It's kind of a similar thing. Yeah, I would say historically my observation is that, um, and this, I mean for decades, um, the Raiders are in such a hurry to meet their quota that they are less thorough than they need to be when effectuating a reduction. Um, the manual, and I always go back to the manual first because the compensation service at VA, the central office, is committed to the premise to put everything in one place so that it will be easier for the Raiders to find. So everything that's a substantive rule is being placed in the manual, the Adjudications Procedures Manual, called M21. And in, I'm going to rattle this off just for technical purposes. In M21, 348D2A. Now, you know, you can you can just Google reductions and it'll it'll come up for you. Um, it explains there that you must apply the provisions of 38 CFR 3.344. Now, I know this is all sounding very technical, but basically we're just saying the manual and the regulation and VA general counsel present opinions are all lined up. They're all consistent with one another, and they're correct. Okay. And the essence of this regulation is what I call the five-year rule. If you've had a disability evaluation in place for five years, then 3.344 says there are a lot of tests you have to make before you reduce a veteran's evaluation. The preamble of this regulation says, and I quote, that the rating should reflect the greatest degree of stability of disability evaluations. So the goal is to be stable. The VA's declaration here in the regulation is that, that evaluations should remain relatively stable. They should not have big fluctuations. They should not be... Um, willy-nilly raised or lowered. There should be some stability in the evaluation. It also says that if you are proposing to make a reduction based on a VA examination, that examination must be as full and complete as the one that established the evaluation in the first place, or it will not be used. And that was upheld by the court as well. Secondly, if the particular disability in question is subject to temporary or episodic improvement, you know, there's plenty of, we can think of a lot of those, can't we? Um, how about the discs in your back when you have exacerbations and remission? That's, that's a classic. The regulation provides that uh, when these are subject to temporary or episodic improvement, they will not be reduced on any one examination. You have to have two or more examinations before you reduce something that's subject to episodic changes. 
Now, what are the exceptions? One is if, if you can demonstrate there has been material improvement. In other words, just not a minor improvement, but a significant material improvement. And number two, you must demonstrate that that improvement has been sustained. So it's been there. It's not just on and off, on and off, but it's sustained. It's a continuous level. And then third, if you find that there's material improvement, and if you find sustained improvement, then you must find also that it's maintained under the ordinary conditions of life. In other words, if I'm a carpenter and I've taken off work for a couple of weeks before my VA exam, review exam, and now my back is better because I've been resting at home, okay, then you can't use that examination to evaluate the disability because you have to show it's maintained under conditions of life. And it actually contains this phrase, you know, not following prolonged rest or bed rest, okay? Those are, and those, that's the intent of the regulations. Um, it also points to uh, mental illness and psychiatric conditions, and you have to be certain that these are not temporary remissions. And so... Hey, Bill, I want, I want to break a couple of those... Question? I want, I, want, yeah, I want to break a couple of those things down. So what if a guy, like one of our two patients, probably has less than five years of disability? What, what applies in that situation? Well, this regulation only applies to disability evaluations that have been in place for five or more years. Okay. Yeah. Now, well, if it's no. less than that, okay, yeah. we don't have to jump through all of those hoops. However... Still, an argument can be made that, of course, now the the court has a a long jurisprudence on the question of examination reports, and it's sort of uh, coalesced in Nieves Rodriguez v. Peak. You can find that at 22 Vet App 295. It was decided in 2008. And basically, the court here is pointing out the legitimate reasons for favoring one opinion over another or favoring one exam over another and what factors consider, like the expertise of the uh, expert witness, um, the factual predicates that they use to uh, determine that opinion, um, the reasoning, and this is most important, can we understand the reason for the opinion? And that, that reason is really pivotal. Why? Okay, if one doctor says this veteran can bend over and touch his toes, and the other one says he can only bend 30 degrees, why are they different? We have to be able to understand why before we decide which one of those we're going to use. Um, so, Bill, so in that, two, in that yeah. period between zero, zero years and five years, does that mm-hmm. mean that the rating code can't change or the percent can't change? Or what, what, is, what does it mean by the disability it's not, it has to be in place? Um, what, what three, I was quoting from 3.344, which was saying, you know, that the intent of evaluating the disability is to maintain a de- greatest degree of stability in the evaluation. Yeah. Um, now, with reductions, as with any evaluation, the court has made it very clear that all of the rating schedule, including those preamble portions, are required to be considered, like 4.1, 4.2. And especially 4.10. 4.10, and here's where you see a consistency in, in the rating schedule. If you look at 3.344 and you look at the words of 4.10, they both contain this phrase under ordinary conditions of life. Okay? So you see, 
when you're evaluating the disability, and let's again go back to the back example, when you're evaluating the back, the frank number of degrees on the day of the examination is not determinative. 4.10 makes clear that that evaluation is to reflect the degree of disability on use. What is the functional impairment under the ordinary conditions of life and employment? And so the intent is not to evaluate the postman's back in the morning. The intent is to evaluate it after he's been delivering mail all day. Then we measure and evaluate the back. That is the intent. Fall a little so, short so sometimes, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I take the whole, the whole clinical situation, you know, in context. But yeah, like in that, in that, in that, in that, yeah, in that zero, in that zero to five year period when the rule doesn't apply so much, but still, it's still based on the exams. It's not so concrete, but it's still based on the quality of the exam and who does them and factual rationale, right? It, it is actually predicated on the entire record. And the duty of the rater is to consider, weigh, and evaluate all of the evidence, including the veteran's description of symptoms, including uh, records of care, in addition to examinations and treatment records. Yeah. And one, one, of, the, one of the things that is still to this day um, I, I, I took a look recently at, at um, 2018 court decisions uh, discussing where the court was invited to review a reduction in evaluation. And there has been no new precedent in the court this year. All of the decisions on this topic that I could find were all single judge opinion saying, well, the law in this circumstance is well settled and there's no new precedent to be established. And they reflect back on those very same uh, opinions that most of us are supposed to be familiar with (laughs) over the decades. And so, um, and, and the, the, the problem is the speed of the adjudication and the automation of the adjudications. Because if you are trained to point and click, make the entries and have the transpose the data off the exam into the software and then let the software evaluate the disability, um, you're going to come up shy. You're going to come up shy because you don't know um, what other factors uh, are not in that software. Uh, that should be. So let's go. Um, let's go to that two. Mm-hmm. Let's go to that two exams. The two exams for a second, because I mean most most mm-hmm. illnesses have some wax and waning aspect to them, and probably, I mean, in my experience with reductions, I, I can't remember hardly ever seeing two exams. You, did you see many two exams when you did yours, or how, is that another one of those software glitches where they don't really pay attention to that? I would say I would say less often. However, however. A VA treatment record may be used as an exam if it provides relevant data. Um, for example, if we're evaluating hypertension and we see um, blood yeah. pressure readings in the treatment record, and then we have yeah. a current examination and there's a disparity there, we have to understand why before we accept what's on the examination as determinative on what the evaluation should be. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another, another aspect you mentioned was this idea of equal exams or same quality. That's, um, how about in your experience, you because know, we see sometimes a lot of nurse practitioners and PAs not rolling in doing exams compared to maybe a physician exam. So, um, not just based on credentials, but based also based on the quality. And um, what's your experience with that, Bill? Yes, well, 
if I get an opinion from a neurosurgeon um, that relates a condition to service, and I have an opinion from a VA examiner who is not a neurosurgeon, but is perhaps a nurse practitioner, then I have to look at the reasoning and I have to decide which one of those to agree with. Um, Now, if the nurse practitioner points out to something in the record that is dispositive, um, like, for example, perhaps an injury to the back occurred during a period of bad service time, you know, while AWOL or while confined, you know, where the disability in question would not be subject to service connection. Um, and the neurosurgeon wasn't aware that it was incurred during a period of disqualifying service, then I would be siding with the nurse practitioner. But if the nurse practitioner, and I actually had a case like this, a nurse practitioner said, it's not related to service because he got a workers' compensation settlement after service. The neurosurgeon who operated on that veteran's back opined that what he found represented progression of the original injury in service. And so I went with the neurosurgeon. <laughs> uh, he was, he was oh, inside uh, the guy's back. He knew it was in there. <laughs> we have a caller in here. Uh, caller, uh, let's see, 816 number. Uh, area code, uh, you have a question or call me in? Yes, I do. Uh, I would like to ask the gentleman, what do you do when the VA uh, has set on your records uh, basically your entire adult life uh, and refused to release those to um, give you the evidence to prove your claim? Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, Let me give you an example, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. Um, well, I think as a are you getting some feedback? Because my uh, I was looking at my tablet. Yeah, it's kinda... a little bit of odd sound, but I can understand you. Go ahead. I'll okay. repeat it for the audience to make sure. Okay. I'm just going to try to uh, turn it off, see if that makes any difference. Well, okay. The question is, well, this is what happened. I. I was medevaced out of Vietnam with a skin disease in 1971 after being in the hospital for a month. I come back, time goes by, my conditions worsen, 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 more conditions develop. Uh, I get discharged on an early release because the volunteer army had started. But before that, I tried to get my record. Uh, medical records so that I could file a claim for a disability because I had so many. I was 100%. I mean, there was no doubt about it. But they said my records were lost back in June of 71, and I was discharged in April of 72. So in February, eight months after Vietnam, I was told those records were lost. So I didn't get to file anything before I got out. Twelve years go by, so now it's 1983, and I filed a claim for skin conditions, and the VA did not respond at all. They denied me immediately. Many more years go by. Uh, I start requesting them um, from 2012 on, on after that, and finally. And I never got any medical records, but finally, in 2015, I did get some showing the months worth of hospitalization in Vietnam and infectious disease ward in Chicago, but I did not uh, get some of the records, and they are withholding the ones that I really need, and they sent me a letter telling me that they were withholding those records due to the deliberative process privilege. Now, that's it in a nutshell. 
I've been in this business. I've been in this business over 42 years. I've well, never heard the word diminutive process. Deliberative process privilege. Process privilege. Deliberative process privilege. Yeah. I've never, never heard either. It, it, okay, it's I've, OES. I've never heard that exact phrase, but here's here's what I am aware of. Um, there's there's a term similar to that called work process, work process, and typically an attorney might make some notes for himself to review and and get get a, develop a picture of the case he's working with. That becomes that attorney's work process. The attorney's work process is not subject to disclosure uh, because it's just the attorney's thoughts at the time and he's entitled to keep his thoughts to himself. Um, That sounds similar to that phrase that you're using, but that does not apply to actual military documents treatment records, personnel records, those are not work process, and they're not privileged, okay? Those are treatment records. Those are yours, and you can have them, and no one can deny that. Well, they won't give them to me. And um, let, me quote the, let, me, let me quote real quick here the, uh, what they're uh, using as uh, the, the term, it's called, again, it's okay. called the Deliberative Process Privilege under FOIA, mm-hmm. Exemption 5, parentheses 5, USC 552, parentheses B, parentheses 5. Huh. It says, well, we are withholding, right <laughs> let, me, let me just read what it says here. It says, we are withholding all information which, if disclosed, would fall under the deliberative process privilege under FOIA exemption five, and then it, then those uh, numbers I gave you, five five two, uh, or okay. USD five five two, B five. All right, I've called that up. Oh, Bill, well, Bill, now, oh. now I've been trying to get these records for forty-seven years. I tried to get them. I tried to get them while I was ever, still on duty. Have you sought any um, assistance from Congress? Yes. Senator Claire McCaskill, which didn't do a thing. Oh, yeah. hmm. She couldn't do oh, anything, her office. She nailed me in either. <laughs> she, she, I didn't hear that. <laughs> I said... That's that, that's my co- co- senator to do, and she hadn't helped me any, and I've contacted her office a dozen times. <laughs> I have two. I have two over the last several years, and she <laughs> yeah, hasn't I mean, done a. She sent me a letter telling me she couldn't do anything, basically. A form letter, yeah. Yeah. Hey, caller. Sometimes you can re- yeah. reproduce your records. You know, besides getting them, there's. Bill knows more, but there's a little rule that says that if the doctor tells you some kind of diagnosis in the service, that during combat, that's something that can sort of be used to replace. Did you get anything like that? Did the doctor tell you what your diagnosis was maybe during service time? Well, that's the whole problem. If I had the diagnosis from the service on a record, I wouldn't need them. But verbal, sometimes verbal... You know, he sees in clinic and tells you what he thinks you have or whatever, just verbally. Do you remember anything like that? Yeah, I think what Dr. Bash is referring to is 38 U.S.C. 1154B. If you incur a disability during combat while engaged with the enemy, okay, um, you don't need documentation of it. Your sworn statement is sufficient proof that it was incurred in service. Now, whether what you incurred in service is related to what you have today is a medical question for a medical examiner to determine, okay? But 
if it was in if your assertion is it's incurred in service and you have evidence that it was incurred in conflict, the, your statement is sufficient proof. Your statement is sufficient proof of service incurrence. You don't yep. have to have documentation service. Um, now, what I'm saying is we're skipping the whole point here. I can't just say, hey, look, I was wounded in combat. I got a disease in Vietnam. You know, I can't just say that and then say, okay, all right then. You know, they want something from the government saying that this took place. Now, if I had something from the government saying this took place, other than my DD-214 showing my service in Vietnam and medals, if I had something other than that, uh, you, I, you know, I could see where I could move on. But when all you have is your your uh, 214, uh, and then you finally, I finally did get my service records from Vietnam. But of course, you know, it's like you know, 45 years late. 45 years too late. I, I did okay, get well. my records. You, you are protected in that circumstance, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But what you're telling me now is that you now have evidence that shows you were treated for an illness, I, I think I heard you say, in Vietnam. Absolutely. And you were hospitalized, and it was an infectious disease. Absolutely. Right? right. Okay. Now we have evidence of service incurrence of this infectious disease. Now the next step right. is the next step is what diagnosis do we have today? That's the second step. Actually it's the first, but anyhow. We have those two. Now what we need is a medical opinion linking the two and saying what we have today is related to what happened in Vietnam because and that because um, conceals the case. Now, I'm going to give you some more good news, okay? All right. New and material evidence. In order to reopen a claim, you have to have new and material evidence. Now, obviously, if you're denied in the past because there's no evidence of having this infection in Vietnam, and you now present VA with that record, then that's obviously new and material. Now, new and material evidence in the form of service records when used to reopen the claim, 38 CFR 3.156C specifically states that that reopens the original claim. So right. if reopened and granted based on those records, your original effective date is preserved all the way back. Well, that's great. If I could just get them to say what the diagnosis was, like for one instance, uh, a systemic uh, blood infection uh, with Ooh. a undetermined organisms. Now, I don't know what, if you know what an undetermined organism is, but I don't. And I don't know of well, any it, doctors or people. Go ahead. It it just means that it's an infection, but they don't know the specific bug. Okay? Like um, staph is a common sort of infection. So the staph bug, they recognize. But the bug you had is something they're not familiar with. doesn't mean you didn't have a bug. It just means they don't know which one because they're not familiar well, with it. Well, what if... What if you're covered from head to toe in mosquito bites because you didn't have a net uh, down in the delta or repellent, but you're covered yeah. in mosquito bites and you broke out with acne and you're swelled up and you got rashes and uh, abdomen pain and a bone pain, that sort of thing? Well, let's not forget mixing in a little herbicides there too, okay? <laughs> Say it again, please. Let's, let's not forget mixing a little herbicides there too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, you know. How about yeah. so? How about diarrhea, Dr. Bash? You have diarrhea, uh, yeah. diarrhea too. Yeah, yeah. I had diarrhea, urinating so, blood. Yeah. Heart, so heart, the, uh, heart was the. This, 
Yes, there's a lot of you know, this, is a, this is a medical question now about how this is going to be related. You know, I was at a conference recently where they talk about these diarrheal diarrheal illnesses and how that sort of breaks down your gut uh, protective membrane. And once that membrane is open, then bacteria can get in through your bowel. It wouldn't normally get there. So you have several. That's why the organism is not known. You have, you have a bowel pathway. You have the mosquito bite pathway. Like Bill says, you've got herbicides that are probably causing some skin wounds. So, you know, the exact, the exact uh, organism doesn't have to be identified. It just has to be in the medical opinion that that was the likely cause. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that opening there in the skin, the mucous membrane, because I did develop an a enlarged painful prostate. And now this is at 19 years old. And uh, besides the prostate, uh, well, let's see. Uh, and, and, well, besides that and the other pain and stuff, I developed all kinds of conditions like uh, um, group A streptococcus with pharyngitis. And, uh, I mean, they know I had that. But they didn't really treat it. Um, no. You know, they just didn't give me the care, or the antibiotics, or whatever I needed. So I got the mosquito bites. And, These organisms, and, you know, the. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These organisms mm-hmm. can be difficult. Like I'm, there's a case they built I worked on years ago where the guy stepped on a stick. You know, the those sharpened sticks that went through his boot. Bungee yeah. stick. <laughs> yeah, sharpened yeah. stick went through his boot. And it carried with it a little bit of material, and then like 40 years later, it pussed out from that, you know, that fungus that was just sitting there. So these things can be around for a long time, be dormant, and not necessarily know. We don't necessarily know what the exact organism is. So let's look at the whole case. But it sounds like you're on pretty good ground with some legal things. And if we could look at the medical part of it, we might be able to get you a good medical opinion and try and link it together. Yes, you know? and uh, and in the interim. Um, while we were discussing things, I looked up 38 U.S.C. Uh, 552b5 to um, to understand this. And specific, and that does not apply to your service records. Okay. okay. And that paragraph, yeah. and I'm I'm quoting the paragraph. It says, and the and basically this is a list of exceptions that are exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. Okay? Now, here's B-5. Interagency or intra-agency memorandums or letters that would not be available by law to a party other than an agency in litigation with the agency, provided that the deliberative process privilege shall not apply to records created 25 years or more before the date on which the records were requested. So, in your case, this section clearly does not apply because, number one, you're not asking for inter- or intra-agencies memorandums or letters. You're not asking for that. You're asking for your own personnel or medical files. Right. Not, not asking for interagency or intra-agency memorandums or letters. And secondly, the records were created more than 25 years ago. Right. So this section does not apply. Exactly. So you're gonna you're gonna need some help. If um, (laughs) yeah, uh, you're gonna need some representation that's going to um, enable you to overcome this. You see, um, now that you're saying exactly what I've kind of been, uh, what I told them, I told them, why would you still withhold my records 45, 47 years later when the whole world knows about Agent Orange and all that stuff? Why would you still be yeah. withholding my records? Yeah. And, and they the, basically and just, go ahead. Understand, sorry. This section. this section was created to allow agents of the government to be able to freely to discuss things in memorandums or letters without fear of um, what they're saying. In other words, right. it, it would have a chilling it would have a chilling effect if 
let's say I wanted to talk to another uh, Raider or decision review officer and say, um, well, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? And we get discussing things, okay? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. to the Freedom of Information Act. That's not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and, and so that, that's not what you're asking for at all. That's not at all what you're asking for. No, it's not. So if, if it takes an attorney to um, file a, a proceeding to get it, uh, then do it. You know? Yeah, that's what that's where I'm at, I guess. That's what it's finally come down to. And I'm going to file that. my notice of appeal. What's that? No, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. it's just gotten to that point. I've I've tried for the last five years just to deal with the VA and say, hey, look, you know, I'm just trying to get, you know, due compensation. Uh, go ahead. Are, are you doing this on your own? Well, you know what? I kind of hate to get into that. No, I'm not on my own. I'm using VFW, and before that it was DAV, but to put it mildly, I caught them lying to me, and they trashed my claim. And it took me five months to get my claim into the system after I had to refile. So I dumped DAV for that reason, for withholding, or not for withholding, but for kind of lying to me. You can fib, and let's say they fib to me pretty heavy. It, so it, it, I got... That, it, I use Dr. Basher. Used... Go ahead. Yeah, Dr. Basher, you may have, even without getting those last bits of your record, you may have enough in there now with a good medical opinion to, to um, you know, move it forward. Yeah. Maybe simultaneous, I... do simultaneous, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's just that, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of at the end of life here, you know, and it's been, uh, I'm 67 now. And this happened when I was 19, and, you know, it's just been a long time, and I finally did get service connected, but that's all happened within the last couple of years because they wouldn't give me any medical records whatsoever until 2015, oh, except for one. I did get the one when I got out of the military, and that was my, my P3 profile on DA3349 for my physical capacity and stamina. Mm-hmm. I had a permanent profile, and they knew that, so they withheld my records all these years because of that. And, you know, so I don't understand. It's documented that I had these conditions. I was non-deployable, medically unfit uh, to be deployed. Uh, I've got these, you know, all these uh, physical conditions, mosquito bites. Uh, I was in Vietnam. I was broke out, swelled up, joint pains, abdomen pain. Uh, I finally, finally wound up in a coma about two months after discharge. You know, things like that. Uh, the group A streptococcus with pharyngitis, and it just went on and on. The prostate problem. I still got BPH. You know, just one thing after another, and they just don't seem to hear me. So... I guess I need a group of attorneys to speak up for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I need a firm or two. Yeah, yeah. You're going to need some uh, well, heavy hitters. You're going to need some heavy you know, hitters. I, I know you guys have other callers waiting, and, and I, you know, I don't want to tie anything up. And I appreciate the time you spent with me, but I think I know where I stand, and I'm going to file that tomorrow and then look for an attorney. Good. Good, and I thank you for the call. Well, thank you very much for all that. Thank you for all that hardship uh, you've endured. Uh, you yeah. and Bill want to give him your contact numbers and and uh, maybe he can contact you. Yeah, I'd be glad uh, to take your you, number. Yeah, you get the bill through me, but uh, I'm drbash at doctor dot com is my email, and then. Um, and then Skip, I got a guy named Skip who does my scheduling, which is a good way to call him and set you up for a half-hour conversation. And he's at 925-381-7561. And um, I'm glad you called in because each patient's case is, you know, the most important case in the world, but it also brings up issues that apply to a lot of other people. So there's no hurry to move on to anybody else. But um, those those old infections from Vietnam are pretty common, so I think if you're... You know, that you have a good case. 
Yeah, you know, and, and it's a, it's getting worse for everybody, and we're getting older. And like the other day, I had a tooth pulled, and some of my jaw came out with it. So the bone the, the bone degeneration is taking a toll, and so I, you know, and the heart's ready to go, and all that kind of stuff. But we just they need to be more accurate on the rating because these raters, they will look at your records and say. Uh, you know, you didn't, you weren't treated for this condition, you weren't diagnosed with this condition, and it didn't occur in the service, but yet I'll be holding that same record in my hand looking at it. And they say it didn't, yeah. the record don't even exist. It's, it's things like yeah, that and, that give the VA a bad I name. Would, it does, and I would attribute that to the need for speed. There are so many cases, and the quotas are on those raters that get those cases out in extraordinary numbers. And so they're taking too many shortcuts. And you, you, you need to be able to work thoroughly and quickly, not just quickly. I totally agree, 100%. The other thing well, is you, can't, you can't realize how, tri- you know, people make this seem trivial, but it's difficult. You know, Bill's been at this for 40-plus years, and, you know, I've got a lot of medical training, and, these cases, you know, they're, they take all my all my training skills to work them through, and the poor raider has to deal with the law and also try to deal with the medicine. It's a difficult task. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I know it is, but you know, when you've got a current diagnosis of a coronary heart disease, and you've got you know from your surgeon, and you have a block 100 percent block carotid artery can't be operated on, you've had a handful of strokes. You know, and you apply for unemployability and, and you can't get it, you know, it's just frustrating. And then you can't get yeah. your records to prove your service connection. Mm-hmm. That that just piles on top of it. So guys do yeah. things they shouldn't do. I agree. Well, yeah. And well, one, well, one thing no. I, I do want to make sure of right now since you brought it up, I, and you don't have to tell anybody, but you set foot in Vietnam and you have heart disease. Ergo, you're presumed to be service-connected for heart disease, and it's just a question of evaluating the heart, not service-connecting the heart, I hope. Right. Well, they, like I say, I okay. finally did get service connection but at, at 30%, but, yes. you know, shoot, I go to the mailbox, you know, 100 feet away, well, not even that, and I'm out of breath. But, you know, it's just a lot of, a lot of things that when you combine them all, like the brain uh, tumors and stuff like that, you know, it's just, it's problematic. And it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a bad situation. And when, when this, I know they're sitting on the evidence and that's why they won't release it. They've got the evidence I need and I have needed for a hundred percent back in 1971 and they won't let me have it. But I am going to get some attorneys, as many as it takes and whatever it takes, because I'm going to get this out to the public. Good. Guys are dying because of this, and it, it shouldn't be that way. Well, thank you very much for your time and trouble. I really do appreciate it and your information. And I've got your number, and I'll be in contact. Thank you, Frank. Okay, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for calling in. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Bye-bye. You know, Bill, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. I'm running across the term here on habit, by the way. I was reading some stuff, and it's Mm -hmm. called malingering. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that term? Sure. Okay. Uh, now, the way I've read it, I've done some research on it. Uh, the BAs quit using that term, and in place of it, they use undiagnosable. Uh, uh, do you know of any other terms that they might use? Um, sure. Uh, sometimes they might describe a condition as functional. That's a buzzword, okay? Functional. Um, functional. Functional, yeah. It was okay. used um, in the past um, to say, well, it, it's 
he doesn't have a disability. The, vet, the veteran doesn't have a disability. They have. They might have um, a functional vision problem or a undiagnosable back problem. Yeah. Okay. Now, now those would be distinct and different from the word malingering, because malingering is intentional. Yes. Malingering yes. is faking symptoms in order to gain benefits. That's malingering. Or to avoid duty. That's malingering. But just because you don't have a diagnosis or just because you have a functional degree of impairment for a reason we don't yet understand, that's not necessarily the same thing as malingering. That's, you know, that's, that's uh, well, I not quite right. Why they, uh, I looked that up, and, and uh, I think it was on Google or whatever, but they they had it undiagnosable in their website as the example of, of another term the VA may use. Meaning the same thing as malingering. I understand that they very well could be quite different. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. They know yes. something's wrong with you, but they can't diagnose. You know. Well, of course, you know Congress uh, protected uh, um, Persian Gulf vets by allowing compensation for undiagnosed illness. You know, we we. We see the veteran has um, manifestations, symptoms, okay, but we don't have a diagnosis to explain it. Well, if that follows uh, service in the Persian Gulf War, you get compensated for it, okay? There was a decision in July... Um, and it, it's it's rather important for for most of history. Um, pain was defined by VA as not a disability. That you have to have an underlying diagnosis to explain the pain before um, you have a disability. Well, a decision came out in July. It's Saunders v. Wilkie. And you find that at uh, 886 Fed Third 1356. And the court, the Federal Circuit, ruled that pain itself can be compensated as a service connected disability, irrespective of the underlying cause. And so, um, so that, that is a major uh, turnaround. Hey, doesn't the doc, so doesn't the doc, the doc have to say something about how it should uh, be related to this? It's a sure. It doesn't consistent. excuse a person from finding a nexus to service, okay, <laughs> or or a nexus to some other service-connected disability. But right, right. Um, it's a major change in the rules. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So in my experience. A lot of these patients that come to me with, you know, they have a history of functional or malingering even, you know. If you look, if I look long enough and hard enough and do enough research medically, I can usually find a diagnosis that, that matches up with what their symptoms are. And so um, mm-hmm. oftentimes you have to change the diagnosis. The patient might say, you know, my classic example is they have chest pain. And they, they keep thinking it's their lung when, you, when it's really their heart. That's a kind of a simple example, but... It can get more detailed, and, and so, um, you know, a lot of times the patients get pushed to the wayside because they, they've been labeled as functional or malingering, and, and, it's, and they really yeah, do have an illness. And didn't we see a number of those in patients with multiple sclerosis that was not diagnosed <laughs> at the time? Yeah, didn't you, we those see those? Yeah, they come. They come with a diagnosis of a psychiatric illness. Oftentimes, you know, they think mm-hmm. they're fabricated because mm-hmm. it's waxes and wanes. You can't find it, and it's before MRI scanning was around. Other testing we have, and so that was your classic example. That's right. And so, um, yeah. you know, it, it, and the other thing is, medicine gets smarter. You know, every every couple of years, it doubles the knowledge base. So, 
you know, stuff that was not known about last year could be very clear this year. And so that's something else that you have to keep in mind as these cases process through 10 years or more, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, uh, gentlemen, we are out of time. Uh, wow, that was fast. Give us, that, that was a fast one. Well, you, you've actually produced a lot of information here <laughs> in a short period of time. Uh, you want to give out your your uh, uh, contact information? Yep, Dr. Bash, Dr. Dr. Yep, Dr. Bash at doctor.com and, and skips my scheduler is 925-381-7561 and um, I appreciate the caller again because he brought in some good data you know raw data that we could chew on trying to help him yes that's good uh, I'd, I'd like to hear how this one uh, comes out I hope he keeps us posted Well, I will. Oh. If I'm still connected. I, I will. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good <laughs> deal. We appreciate it. Okay. Because uh, you know these these cases, as you know, can turn into quite a deal. So I know what you're talking about. Uh, yes. Well. And I, I, with I that, appreciate your. Well, we appreciate you calling in. Thank you very kindly. Okay, John, we're we're ready to log off here. All righty, we'll pull the plug on her. Well, pull the plug. You've been listening to the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show, sponsored by Hadit.com. All opinions expressed here are the opinions of the individuals appearing on the show and are not the opinions of Hadit.com or Blog Talk Radio. Tune in next time for another edition of Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio and the Ask Bachelor Show.